Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. Ladies and gentlemen, my next guest has uh, written a couple of books. <laughs> One of them is called the, uh, the Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing, which made her an international literary star. And uh, the new book is called The Wonder Spot, which continues the story of uh, young Sophie Applebaum's life. And uh, will you please welcome the author, Melissa Bank, to West Coast Live. If you find it, it's in a stack with the David Sedaris. Did you find it? All right, look, never mind. Hi, I'm very sorry. I normally have the author's book out here. That's okay. And ask you to read something from it. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Are uh, you relieved that you don't have to read something? No, I'm, I, I, reading is a relief because I, it means I don't have to talk for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> and you can just go back and, and, and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, the, uh, there's something about interviews that's, that's very strange. I mean, just as, as an interview, I mean, the sort of exchange of information, why people are willing to come out and put themselves in public, you know, you know in order to sort of move a book, sell an idea or something. But you also want to be guarded at the same time? Well, the weird thing is that what it takes to be a writer is to spend many, 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 many hours alone in a room. And then you publish a book and it's like, and now you're supposed to be a performer. You know, I mean, actors know that's what they're, um, actors know that's what they're, they're doing. When they rehearse, they know that the eventual thing is the performance. Everything is for the performance, but you don't really know that as a writer. And you sort of walk out like um, stunned by the light and the, you know, inability to smoke cigarettes. But along in the, in the course, I mean, you spend more than just days. I mean, for instance, uh, your, fir- your first book, what, took 12 years? Yes, 12. They just went by in a snap. <laughs> <laughs> and, and during that time, you, you wrote and reimagined Sophie, and, and you changed, and her character changed, and she's changed in, this, in the new book as well. Well, actually, I, 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 I will say the first book is, is Jane Rosenau. I'm sorry, Jane. That's okay. And, and, um, and now this is Sophie. I, you know, I didn't actually realize with the first book that I was writing a book. I was just writing stories. Um, and, and I would, um, I hoped I was writing a book, but what I generally did was I'd finish a story and I'd add up the number of pages, and then I'd add up the pages from the last story and the story, and i think, I'm moving toward a book. Um, but uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't until the end that I sort of realized I was writing a book. Otherwise, I would have been, you know, too scared. Too scared, and, and, and so, uh, and the wonder spot, you knew that you were writing a book from the beginning? Well, no, in order to write the book, I, I said that I was writing stories that were not good enough for the book. <laughs> um, but I needed to write them in order to prepare to write the book. So self-deprecation is a form of survival. It really is. I mean, I need, I, I think anybody who sits down and says like, I'm writing a book now, you know, I, I, how would anybody do that? I mean, I. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's important to, you have to trick yourself into it. And so that's how you tricked yourself into it for, for months and months. At, somewhere along in this line, you had an, uh, you fell off of a bicycle and it interrupted your writing work for a while. That's true. I, um, I, uh, 
Well, the the sort of larger context is this is sort of supposed to be a funny show, but. Um, no, no, as we just heard about the death of krill out in the Pacific and <laughs> the the end of the food chain as we know it. I mean, I um I had cancer. Big laugh there, um, and uh, I'd gone through all the various treatments, and then I. I was on the last leg, so to speak, and I was going to um, radiation. Um, and I decided that I was sort of entering my own personal Olympics, and I was going to ride my bicycle up to Columbia Presbyterian, which was, you know, like an hour away. Um, and I was on my way back from radiation when I got hit by a car. Um, and the, it was actually like when I woke up in the hospital, um, um, I... I couldn't remember anything. It was like Memento. I mean, I couldn't make new memories. Do you know that movie Memento? Um, only mine didn't go in reverse order. I, um, I, I, I just couldn't remember anything. My brother that was there, and I could actually feel that I'd asked before, but I kept on asking over and over again, um, tell me what I'm doing here again. And I was afraid. I mean, I actually was afraid that um, he would realize how that I had brain damage, and then he would st- start treating me like I had brain damage, and then I would ha- have no chance of ever kind of being myself again. Um, and uh, um, and then I had, you know, I had pretty serious neurological problems. But because of the cancer, I, I was like, you know what? That's nothing. I'm fine because I, I couldn't afford to really think about it. If I thought about it, if I sort of acknowledged how the, the shape I was in, um, then I would feel blighted. I sort of, I mean, I felt sort of tenuous anyway. I felt like there was a kind of a, a, a bullseye on my back, like someone is trying to pick me off. And there, the day after the, uh, I came back from the hospital, uh, an iron fell on my head. And I, I'm not, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I was like, could you pay attention to somebody else for a few minutes? Um, but it was, uh, you know, what I lost, I lost probably like the top 15% of my vocabulary. Like any word that was tenuously lodged in my brain was kind of cut loose. And, um, and I lost for about a year the ability to, um, the, the neurologist called it sequential thinking. What I thought of it as sort of stacking information, like I couldn't give directions, say, or I couldn't say, I woke up this morning, I brushed my teeth, I got dressed, and I caught a cab. I, I could say, caught a cab. Um, and I, I, it was hard because I sort of had survived on telling stories. Like as long as I could tell a story or make a joke about what I was going through, then I didn't feel like I was gross or terrible. Or you know, when you're when you're seriously ill, you can you go through all of these really you know awful things. And if I could talk about it, then I didn't feel like I was disgusting. I felt like I was going through a disgusting thing. Um, but I lost that ability. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't really talk. You know what's interesting, though? I worked in advertising, and no one noticed the difference. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was thinking in a way that as you were describing that experience of that, that kind of aphasia, that, that you were reduced to sloganeering. You know, I, I actually, I could, I could um, speak, you know, I, I could speak more fluently than I am now. I, I, th- this is actually how I sounded. I couldn't remember, like, the most basic words. I'd be like, you know what I was thinking is I'd like some, um, 
um, breakfast. I mean, it was, it was, I really lost, you know, basic words for a while. But and, this, and this coming after the, the success of, of Girl's Guide. No, this, is this was before. before. Yeah. This was in like 1994. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and, then, um, and then I got better. <laughs> and then I had a, a best-selling book. And then people listened to you all the time? And then everybody wanted to know what I thought about things. <laughs> I tell you, a, a conk on the head. So, uh, Madeline books, uh, there's something about Bemelman's pattern and rhythm of writing that you, that you like, or at least your character likes. Yeah, I actually, um, I, I love that, the Madeline books and Two Straight Lines, We Brushed Our Teeth, or, you know, that whole thing. In the middle of the night, Miss Clavel turned on the light. I'll never forget that. Yeah. But Eloise was not a, ro- a role model. I, you know, I didn't really, I, I came late to Eloise. Uh-huh. I probably wouldn't, I, I, I yeah, I, I don't know why. I think maybe my parents thought I was already too much like Eloise. And Always living, I don't know if you know the Eloise stories. She lives in the... Uh, the plaza, always ordering room service. Parents are always away. Best friends with the staff. Yeah, I, I actually just lived in the plaza in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, you, you, uh, you enjoyed, uh, as, a, as a writer, recreating the rhythm of the Madeline mandolin books. I actually probably, I, I, I am pretty attuned to the rhythm of, of writing. I mean, I, there, I also quote Billy Collins. I don't know whether you know the Poet laureate Billy Collins, great poet. Um, I love his work, and actually, he'll um, his poems are in my head, and they affect you know they affect the rhythm of of my speech. I, I think it's I um, I was nervous about this book tour. I, I felt you know I, I, it was a long time that my last book was published because I'm a slow, slow, slow writer. And so I was a little nervous about this book tour, and I went to somebody to for a speech lessons, and I, I I didn't really I didn't profit too much from them. But mostly I was like lying on my back on the floor yelling, "Oh!" Um, and that hasn't come up yet in my book tour. Um, well, we can do that now. I mean, if you'd like, and and do a little vocalizing and and and. Uh, was it, was it to overcome, uh, to deal with confidence issues in public? It was, actually. I mean, I just felt, I just, I, f- I felt just sort of overall insecure. And, you know, it's scary when you, you know, a second book, I sort of felt like I was coming out with a whole catalog of my limitations as a writer. And I felt, I just felt very nervous about it. And um, lying on the floor saying, ah, did not help me as much as I'd anticipated. But, you know, one of the things that I loved about it was I had to memorize um, the opening lines of the prologue from Romeo and Juliet. And I loved walking around the street, um, just, you know, two households both alike in dignity and fair Verona where we lay our scene. Um, It's just a great thing. I didn't have one of those educations where you memorize, you know, you memorize uh, poetry. I didn't. I went to public school, and I I um, didn't memorize anything. I did memorize Bruce Springsteen songs, and I could knew every word of every song. And my father once turned to me in the car and said, "If you could learn something else that well, it would be a good thing." But you know, I understand. I drove a carload of fourth graders, and one of the kids knew all of the lyrics of a Green Day song, 
And he kept singing it over and over again for a hundred miles. Wow. I was, I was longing for 99 bottles of beer or something. <laughs> now is the beginning of the rest of your life. I mean, some such, anyway. Uh, I mean, uh, the, no, reaction to to, the reaction to this book has been that it's, it's, it's also, uh, in, in a way, uh, f funnier than the, the first, but also takes on even more substantial issues. Of, you know, and, and I'm just wondering, as a writer, were you conscious of this as you prepared these little segments of the book, these little booklets, these stories that might have ended up in the book? You know, that's a question that you weighed a whole book toward to hear. Your, your book is funnier and deeper than, it, than the last one. Um, were you conscious of that? Well, let's see. Uh, I was a little conscious of it. Uh, I certainly tried to make it the best it could be. No, I, that's a great voice. That, that voice, that, that vocalizing, that's fantastic. Uh, um, you know, I was aware, it was, it was a painful book for me to write, so I was, I think I, I um, I was really worried. It was fine with me that it was painful to write. It was not fine with me if it was going to be painful to read. Um, so I was always just ecstatic when there was something funny. I mean, that's always the you know my favorite thing is to is to. I mean, unlike David Sedaris, can we just say how great David Sedaris was for one second? I was so scared that I was going to go before David Sedaris, which is like. I'll be opening for Bob Dylan tonight. Um, um, but, you know, he's so, he's so funny all the time. And my writing is not like that. I think, it, I think what I do is sort of um, get, there's something funny in the middle of something hard or sad or tense. Um, and so I was always, I'm just always ecstatic when I get to something um, when I've written something funny. And the jokes are not like, you know, or they're not really jokes. Like, two rabbis were on a boat. Um, but it's... Um, there are quips. There are one-liners. There are scenes. There are, uh, you know, scenes that evolve. There's one I'd like you to, uh, to read, if you, if you wouldn't mind. That just uh, This is uh, from the beginning of the section. Run, 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 run away. And I made just one little tiny edit in it. Just if you wouldn't say that word, we'd each get fined five hundred thousand dollars. So, <laughs> and then through there, yeah. All right. When my brother tells me he's been seeing a psychiatrist, I say, "That's great, Jack." He says, "What? You think I'm screwed up?" I say, "How'd you find him?" He says, "What makes you think my psychiatrist is a man?" Her name is Mary Pat Delmer, and Jack tells me she is brilliant. He says, she blows me away, and I think they, may, they must be talking a lot about junior high. <laughs> wow, I say. He smiles. I told her you'd say that. When he tells me how beautiful she is, I say, but not so beautiful that you have trouble concentrating. She's pretty beautiful, he says. Plus, impressive. She won a scholarship to college, for example, and put herself through medical school. She grew up in rural Tennessee, where her parents still run a luncheonette. I say, she told you all that? Yeah, he says, why? I don't think of psychiatrists talking that much. 
It's not until he tells me that they're, in, they're not in Freudian analysis and breaks out laughing that I realize he's not in analysis at all. Mary Pat is his new girlfriend. <laughs> he laughs like a madman, and I say, very funny, though it is, in fact, very funny just to hear Jack laugh, as well as a huge relief. Our father died not even two months ago. My eggs and Jack's pancakes are set before us, and we stop talking to eat. We're at Homer's, the diner around the corner from his apartment in the village. I ask how he met Mary Pat. He tells me Pete referred her. For a moment, he gets waylaid talking about the fishing shack he helped Pete restore this summer. Pete lives year-round in Martha's Vineyard with his Newfoundland, Lila, who expresses her heartache by howling to Billy Holiday records. <laughs> Dog, you don't know the trouble I've seen. <laughs> Jack says Pete called when MP moved to town. I think he's always been in a, a little in love with her. I say nothing. I have always been a little in love with Pete. Melissa Bank, reading from The Wonder Spot. I hope you do the audiobook of this. I did, I did. Oh, you did, you did yeah. do the audiobook? Yeah. That must have been fun. It, it, was, it was actually a little nerve-wracking because I, I, I hadn't read it in public yet. And, um, and I was in a studio, um, and the people, I hope they're listening, had, had this was their 500,000th audiobook, and they just, they didn't, they just weren't listening. And uh, I mean, they heard when I, my stomach growled, but they didn't hear when I made a joke. <laughs> so, I mean, imagine reading to someone and, and you're, you know, you're, you're reading what should be, you know, a really moving part or, you know, a funny part. And, and the, you know, out there you see somebody going. <laughs> Gesture of. Working with dials. Forgot I was on the radio. <laughs> very, very elaborate kind of tweaking movement with fingers. <laughs> um, but so it was actually, I was so thrilled when I met David Starris and he told me that I read my audiobook well, which is just like, you know, again, Bob Dylan saying he likes the way you write songs. Yeah, it was yeah. so thrilling. Well, I have just a little compliment here. I like this, this line here. He's, he says, I asked him how I met Mary Pat, and he tells me, Pete referred to her. And <laughs> I mean, did that just pop into your head or had you heard somebody say it? No, it just, just popped in like a hilarious little gift. <laughs> now, you know, the thing about, the, about anything that you'll read that's good in this book is I'm actually not responsible for it. I mean, the, the conscious part of my brain that you yourself are left with and your studio audience is left with is like seven grade levels behind my subconscious. <laughs> Um, which is the part of me that wrote the book. So I can, when, I, when I, I've written, I in quotes, have written um, a joke, I, I don't feel like it's mine. Like I'll call up friends, I'll say, okay, you gotta hear this. Like I've been to a show and it was, you know, it's a really good line I heard somewhere. Well, I, uh, it would be great to be on the receiving end of those phone calls. I mean, they're very funny lines throughout the book. Uh, the book is called The Wonder Spot. It follows on The Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing by um, Melissa Bank, and I hope you write books uh, sooner than a decade apart. I won't, because I am the slowest writer in the world. The slowest writer in the world, Melissa Bank. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live. 
right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.